Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. So welcome back. Claire and I are just thrilled to begin our new season of the Vital and Thriving podcast. Uh, Though I can report that we are both exhausted today. I just got back from Los Angeles, where it is very hot, and where I saw the Dodgers mercilessly beat the Giants. So, so I'm Again. just a little. I'm not only hot. I'm I'm just a little down. <laughs> but Claire, you you have come from farther away. Uh, I have, yeah. I got back at um, two in the morning from a six-day trip to Guatemala with an amazing human rights organization called Cristosal, which uh, was founded out of um, the Episcopal Church and is largely supported by Episcopal churches, uh, but they work in Central America on the defense of human rights, and this trip had a special focus on the LGBTQ plus population, and it was oh, so inspiring and really just an incredible few days. Um, but yeah, I got like four hours of sleep, so this is going to uh, be a lot of fun. <laughs> but, but you know, it sounds like wonderful things are happening there. The, the, the kind of the kind of victory over over evil that the, the giants were not able to. <laughs> To, to, to bring to bring to Los Angeles. <laughs> Sorry. No, that sounds great. Well, I yeah. am so excited about our guest today, uh, the Reverend Rachel Stout. She serves as a reflective practitioner. Such a great term. Maybe she'll tell us what that means in a minute. A reflect a reflective practitioner here at the Center for Church Innovation, which, by the way, is our new name for. Newbegin House of Studies. We've kind of gone through a, a renaming process. So she's with the Center for Church Innovation. And she also serves as a clergy coach for the leaders of uh, the vital and thriving congregations, or as we uh, really want to emphasize, the spiritual leaders of congregations uh, through vital and thriving. Hmm. Yes. She's a Lutheran pastor who has actually led congregations through the process we're adapting here in the Diocese of California. My own congregation is participating along with 12 others, and we are about to launch a new cohort. Which I will just say, uh, if any of our listeners are curious about the process uh, or if their congregation may want to explore participating in our 2023 cohort, you can visit us at vitalthriving.org, just one word, vitalthriving.org, and you'll see information and a short video that'll tell you more. Awesome. Rachel currently leads two congregations in Minnesota, in addition to her work with the Center and Vital and Thriving. Welcome to the Vital and Thriving podcast, Rachel. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here and to be with all of you. 
today. So, um, and I will just say, Scott, that as a Minnesotan, we are regularly sort of, um, we go up and down with the twins, um, the Minnesota twins every year. So I, we, I, we understand, I understand that disappointment. And so it's, yeah, I feel it's it. It's just, yeah. it's just a journey, isn't it? Yes. It's a journey. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, so Rachel, you are such a great colleague and I love getting to work with you. Well, I get, I love getting to work with both of you, I should say. Uh, but I've told you this before. I've only been to Minnesota once in my life. And it was a, it was a great uh, short visit, but since 1985, I've been listening to Garrison Keillor talk about it. And my question is, does he get it right? Yes or no? Go. Uh yes and no. Um, you know, uh, there it depends on where you're at. <laughs> in this it really does because um, you you will meet people that are very much like the people of Lake Wobegon. I mean, just sort of he um, and and you will meet people, though, that when he sort of he captures the sort of neighborliness that's that's um, kind of inherent in in the culture a little little bit, particularly in rural areas um, and in small towns. But, yeah, I mean, it he gets that there's so much truth to what he says. And even some of the stuff that he's critical about is, is very true, too. I mean, we can be a pretty passive aggressive people. So. But yeah, he's a delightful storyteller and, um, and, and, and has been sort of a wonderful voice for um, sort of that part of, of our culture and creating that culture for Minnesota. So, yeah. I imagine none of that passive aggressiveness ever slips into the church since that is so oh, not into <laughs> community in general. <laughs> right, um, right. So, never. All the time. Yeah. All the time. It but is but just, maybe that's... Just, yeah. yeah. But so is that really rich neighborliness and that sense of sort of, you know, if if if, if it's the yeah. shirt that off your back that's required. I mean, there are people that will just sort of, you know, hand it over. No questions asked. And and we'll just do what needs to be done and, mm. and care for one another. And, and that, of course, isn't just in Minnesota, but, um, but yeah, so Garrison Keillor is a wonderful way of sort of capturing that, the essence of, especially for those of us who are native to the state and have kind of grown up steeped in, in, in that kind of, um, in that sort of Scandinavian um, uh, heritage that's really in the bones. Yeah. Whether you, whether you have Scandinavian heritage in your, in your DNA or not, I mean, it's just inherent in sort of everything that we do. We just finished the state fair, just got over and it's called the great Minnesota get together. I mean, (laughs) and you know, there's more food and there's more, you know, whatever. I mean, the idea of people getting together and eating and, and being community is so important that it lasts two weeks long. So yeah. And, and there's millions of people that come through the gates of that That's fair. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all the other stuff that accompanies the fair, too. Um, but, yeah, it really celebrates the the um, the neighborliness and the idea that, I mean, we just love to eat, get together and eat and and be together. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew that's that, – I knew I was drawn to Minnesota for some reason. I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Rachel, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your faith story. Did you grow up in the church? How did you find your way into discipleship and a call to ministry? Uh, So I'm a cradle Lutheran. Um, I grew up in a small town 
And, um, you know, I am who I am because of my mom and her deep faith in the Lord. And, and she uh, really encouraged not only involvement um, in church, but was the one who had said to me in high school, we were dress shopping. And she said, well, Rachel, I really don't think that's the sort of dress that a pastor wears. Now, I was 18 at the time and uh, has, was really set on being a teacher, not a pastor. But but as, you know, the years passed and, and um, uh, that, that sense of call kind of deepened. From from high school, I went. I attended a college of of the church um, in Minneapolis, Augsburg, and from there went to seminary in St. Paul. And so, yeah, a fairly sort of. I mean, it looks like a straight path, but um, there's a lot of discernment along the way in terms of you know what what type of ministry, and and my mother's prayer the whole time. I mean, I, I really am where I am because of of her prayers and her faith. But uh, was I just I just want you to be someone's pastor, Rachel. I just think you should be someone's pastor. So I always tell people, initially, I went to seminary for her and then figured out when I got into the parish that, yeah, gosh, this is something I really want to do and um, began to sort of find my way into what it is that I was really called to do within that, with, within, within parish ministry. So, yeah, it's, it's not a straight line by any means, but um, certainly wouldn't be where I, where I am without her prayers. So, yeah. Man, my my mom wanted me to be a rock and roll pianist, and I, I just wish I'd listened to. Could have, I could have had such a, I could have had such a different journey if I had listened to my mother, Rachel. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. I I'm uh, yeah. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by the fact that in addition to know you know being a pastor, as your mom you know through the Holy Spirit envisioned, right. uh, you're also married to a pastor. And it sounds like, you know, your, your family then has a connection to three congregations. So yeah. What does Christmas Eve look like at your house? Um, well, so our, our mothers are still alive. And so my mother-in-law comes from Pennsylvania and my mom comes and there's usually one or both. Um, my mother-in-law is a fantastic cook. So she just takes over the kitchen and we just do church. My kids are probably the only kids who don't get to open gifts. You just go work those three congregations. (laughs) We do. We do. And they go to church. They come to church with us. I I have two services Christmas Eve. Um, My husband has two. And so we just we just do church. Uh, We also do Christmas Day. So then, you know, we do more church and and then we settle into, you know, a meal and presents and and all of that. So, yeah, it doesn't quite look like. uh, No doubt. And a nap. Yes. Yes. A big nap. Um, it was interesting. One year, there was one year and, and Holy Week looks very similar, by the way. One year where for Easter, we were by ourselves and this is before my daughters were born. And so I made chicken nuggets for and frozen pizza for Easter dinner. My mother-in-law was aghast. I mean, she was just appalled my that my son was eating chicken nuggets on Easter Sunday. <laughs> so she has never missed a Christmas or an Easter with us because like her grandkids need to like eat the foods that are tradition traditional to the days. Um, So she takes over my kitchen and I love it. And moms are really rising to the occasion on this podcast. They are. They are. are. Um, Yeah. We couldn't do what, I mean, it's easier now that they're older, but especially when they were younger, this, that we couldn't do 
what we do without them mm-hmm. and without people in the congregation. We have had a number of people who have over the years adopted our kids and taken them to their homes and then spent part of Christmas Eve with other families. So, and, and, you know, various mm-hmm. days, um, in Holy Week, they just go and hang out with other people and become a part of, of other families for a short period of time. So, yeah, it's, it's been a gift. It's been a gift. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So Rachel, you led at least one of these many congregations you're affiliated with through the process called Partnership for the Missional Church, which we're now doing through Vital and Thriving. Could you tell us about that first experience and what you learned? So I am one that really, uh, at least, well, not so much now, but but when I was probably uh, new to being a pastor, more of a puppy pastor, um, that, uh, I really liked sort of being in control and having my hands just firmly on the wheel on everything. And what PMC taught me was that, um, I had to let go and that I couldn't, I had to let my lay leaders who are competent and, and, um, energized and really excited about the process, do the work. And so, you know, it was learning how to lead and not lead. And that was hard. Um, It was really hard learning for me. But everything went better when I learned to just sort of let go and loosen the reins a bit and and let them do um, what they felt called to do. And uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that's been that's been the biggest learning. And not only for like your lay leaders, but to let get out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Cause she will, she will go where she wants to. Mm, And, you know, the more you sort of fight against that, the harder it is to do the, not only to do the work, but to, to discern, to, to engage in discernment for the future. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, Rachel. um, Mm -hmm. So what has surprised you now that you're working with, um, you know, a group of West Coast Episcopalians versus the context of of working, you know, with Lutherans, kind of, you know, your cradle church, cradle culture. Mm-hmm. Um, what surprised you on the journey so far? Um, you know, I don't know if this was a huge surprise. Nice I, more of a, that's a cue there. That's, <laughs> that's the cue there. Um, one of the things that I think that is, um, is, uh, that when churches are, are, are going through a time of stagnation or they're struggling to try to figure out what's next, it, it tends to feel isolating, right? We, we think, oh, we're the only one in this situation. You know, how are we going to get through? Everybody else seems to be doing so well. What are we doing wrong? And what's really been lovely and like not really a surprise, but almost just sort of a confirmation of the challenges that we face in the Lutheran church. Are, very, are similar and the same as the challenges faced in the Episcopal Church. And so it invites um, some uh, cross-conversations that can be had about, um, about not only our shared work in the gospel, but how we, how we meet these adaptive challenges. And it, and it becomes an opportunity to share resources and to uh, apply the listening that we that the listening that we work on in this first year into that 
And and of course that I mean that's not just Lutherans and Episcopalians, right? I mean that that's a way for us to work across denominations, period. And I think that that's that's we've got to do a little bit more of that as we head into the future and as we think about what it means to be church in this 21st century. We have to think about, you know, how do we work with one another um, across denominational and and even sort of in denominational lines, but even interreligiously, how do we do it? Yeah, we heard that so many times in the first season of this podcast, that sense of how uh, every congregation can begin to feel like an island. And and yet part of what's so strong about the vital and thriving uh, model as we're living into it at this point is that that cohort experience and how we can learn from one another. So I really appreciate you naming that. Um, and I also want to ask, you know, when you did this before, you did it before COVID. And it seems to me that we're just beginning to understand how COVID has really changed so many things about the life of the church. Um, I, I wonder what are some of the differences you're seeing in leading this process post-COVID? So you can tell a lot about a congregation simply by being in a shared space with them, by worshiping with them by sitting around a table with them. And COVID kept us from getting to, I mean, not only did we not all get to worship, you know, in person for some time, right? But it's it's a much different experience to worship with a congregation via a live stream or Zoom than it is to actually sit in the sanctuary. You, you can learn so much just from sitting in a sanctuary and worshiping together that you can't get um, from there. So then you have to start sort of, you know, asking different questions and um, sort of using other methods to, to and, and means to get to know people, you know, and, and all the meetings, all of the sort of uh, meetings that we did uh, were by Zoom, which is a great tool, but limiting because, it, it doesn't uh, give us that full sort of in-person experience, a little harder to read uh, body language um, and some of those non-verbals, especially if people don't turn on their cameras, things like that. So, yeah, so it, it uh, probably slowed the process down a little bit in some instances because we couldn't be in proximity to people. Yeah. You know, Rachel, what I am also thinking about as I hear you talk about this is the thing that really surprised me when we had our first in-person gathering. Now, it was it was hybrid, but the majority of people were able to come in person uh, and gather um, in the spring at All Souls Parish in Berkeley. I was, I was stunned by the energy that was in the room. There was something about just all these people coming together, worshiping, being together. It just... I, I, you know, I, I felt like I rode on that charge for, for weeks. (laughs) So for some of our listeners, uh, it might be good to hear an overview of what the process looks like. I know you like to say that this, this three-year journey, you know, it's not, it is non-linear. I've heard Mm -hmm. you and, um, uh, our director of research, uh, Pat Kiefert, compare it to sailing of, uh, you know, the way you, the way you tack and respond to both the challenges you're discerning in front of you, but also the wind of the spirit, like what, what you sense God doing. It's like sailing. Can you give us an overview of how you 
encourage a group of congregations to to set sail? Um, so this is a three-year process. And, you know, Scott, you mentioned the website, and I know there are tons of resources on there that already highlight sort of the various, the three phases of the process, as well as, you know, delineates the work. And it can look pretty linear. You know, here's A, here's B, here's C, and here's what you do. But uh, well, there is sort of a, there's a process, the outcomes for, for every congregation are, are different because of the uniqueness of each congregation and, and God's work in those places. And so in that regard, it is like sailing. I mean, it, it requires a team of people. It requires, um, I've never seen anybody, well, I think you can sail alone, but I don't know is like that's necessarily a recommended thing, right? That you, that you sail alone and that you do this work. And we don't recommend that congregations sort of lump all this work on one person, right? That we do this work together. And responding, as you say, to the wind of the Holy Spirit and to um, sort of all of the conditions that surround us. And yeah, so we're, we're kind of moving, moving with the water and um, moving with the Spirit. And uh, each step along the way teaches, te- will teach us something different about each place. Um, there will be similarities across the board, for sure. But there will definitely be sort of unique learnings that congregations will receive to their place and to this time. So this first year, we've been entirely focused on discovery, cultivating practices of deep listening to God and to one another in order to discover our next steps. Talk to us a bit about listening practices. What is dwelling in the Word? So dwelling in the word is the first of the six missional practices. And uh, this is uh, a way of, of, of reading and hearing scripture that uh, isn't didactic. It, it isn't um, meant to be a Bible study. And so you begin with prayer. I mean, just to lay out the practice, right? You begin with prayer, inviting God's Holy Spirit into what you're doing. You read the text, and we use in this first year, uh, Luke 10, 1 through uh, 12, and it's the sending of the 70. And uh, we we read that, uh, take a healthy amount of silence, 90 seconds, and then we hear it again. Um, and if we can hear it in a different voice, that's always encouraged too. And then we invite people to pair up with a reasonably friendly looking stranger and listen to one another into free speech. What did they hear? What stopped them? What questions do they have? And to listen to each other. And then when they report back to the group, they're reporting what they, what they heard their partner say. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's a really uh, delightful pra- practice. And um, I, I have, uh, watched as lay people have done this and have taken to it and um, have had really generative conversations. And and I've been with clergy and spiritual leaders as they've done it. And I'm always surprised and always um, come away feeling sort of like I've, I've gone a little deeper in this particular text. And some of the other listening practices that we, that we uh, will work on too uh, one is, especially in this second in this second event coming up for the pilot group, 
is uh, corporate spiritual discernment. And how do we do that discernment work as a group? And that's, that's somewhat different than how we do it um, as individuals. So we'll, we'll work on that process as well. One of the other practices is dwelling in the wor- world and how we um, sort of see the work of God in the world and, and um, in not only in our congregations, but in our communities and even further. And all of the practices, by the way, start with dwelling in the word. That's the first practice, but all the other practices begin with dwelling in the word. And then we move into that practice. So dwelling in the word is the, the foundation for what we do. It, because, well, because, right, it's, it is this Trinitarian vision that says mm-hmm. this is God's world and the spirit is here. God is, God is in your community. God is at work. And at the end of the day, all the, you know, ethnography, the research, the, the data, mm-hmm. the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is, you know, where is God at work and how do we, how do we join? Because God has, God brought this congregation to existence, right? We, we believe that God still has, you know, still has, there's still a call. I I am interested though. uh, It's, I think it might be helpful for folks. You know, there are some, there, you do some training in this first phase for people to actually do listening through, through interviews, Mm-hmm. Uh, could you say a word about kind of what what that looks like in a congregation? Yeah, so we um, encourage folks to there's so there's um, in this first phase there's two teams of people at work um, the steering team and then there's the listening leaders and uh, these folks uh, interview depending on the size of the congregation roughly twenty four. People and and we ask that they take them from three segments of the congregation. So you have this sort of inside family group, and then the next ring, you you so you get twenty five percent of your interviews from this first group, this inside group, and fifty percent of your interviews from the um, people who are part of the congregation, but maybe not necessarily part of the every uh, sort of those decisions decision-making processes, but very, but active and, and there. And then we encourage 25% outside of the congregation. So these outsiders to the congregation. So these might be folks that are connected to the congregation, but not necessarily in the same way. So um, I, I have encouraged congregations to uh, talk with uh, people that attend either AA groups, uh, Boy Scout troops, uh, Girl Scout troops, anybody uh, who uses the building is connected to the building, but maybe is just on the outside Mm. of the congregation. And what we encourage is in these interviews is storytelling. We are so interested in the stories um, that people have about formative experiences in the congregation and how they handle conflict, how worship that's meaningful so we have four questions. We have we have a total of eight questions in each interview. Four um, are are the same across the board, and then the listening leaders get to pick the other four questions from a, a selection. And uh, every everything that I've heard so far with our pilot group, give an example of the kind of question you're talking about, Rachel. Yeah. So the, one of the very first questions is uh, talk about a, an experience of worship that was meaningful for you. And, and why? And um, 
uh, another one of the questions is about conflict. <laughs> is there conflict? How do you how do how does the congregation fight? Um, <laughs> uh, and and then another question is, you know, if you were to go away, so for for five years and come back, what what would you what would you want to still see? What would you want to what would you hope would still be present in the congregation? Yeah, and I would just echo what you said earlier, Rachel, that my own community found this really um, meaningful and and surprisingly so for the people who were listening. You know, we've we've heard some congregations hesitate to join the partnership for the missional church process because, well, they're struggling to find volunteers just to get back to something like normal, and it seems like a lot of work. Um, what do you say to someone who says, this sounds great, but I'm not sure we can do all of this. We just don't have enough energy. So this process is restorative in its own way. Um, and it also generates energy. I have seen and experienced lay people who come in just thoroughly exhausted uh, and, and even pre-COVID, right? Pre-COVID, our lives were, were very busy and, and people were tired then too. It's a different kind of tired now, but, and, and there's a restorative aspect to this. And I think part of that has to do with, because we're, we're working on listening to God, listening to one another, taking a deep breath and really tuning our ears to, to the work of God in our midst. And that also generates energy. Uh, as I tell people, once you start noticing where God is at work, you can't stop. You can't unsee those things. And that um, generates energy and curiosity and fuels, fuels the work that comes. And hopefully what that also does is it encourages those that are sort of watching from the wings to say, well, now how do I get to be a part of that work? And thankfully, you know, as we move through the various phases, we need new groups of people and additional people to, to work with. Uh, the process along the way. So yeah, it, it, it's a wonderfully restorative process. It is a lot of work, but it's, it's restorative and um, there's lots of great energy that's generated um, along the way. So I understand that you're also a doctoral student on top of all of the other many, many things that you're doing. Um, what is the focus of your research? So uh, my uh, Doctoral work is at Fuller and uh, in their leading change cohort. And so it's just that um, uh, it's, it's been a joy to study with Todd Bolsinger. And what I'm really interested in because of my context, because of my, my, my own experience sort of having grown up in the church is how do we develop adaptive capacity in lay people, particularly those in small membership congregations? Because those are the places where where mm. you sort of get the, oh, I don't know if we can do this, or gee, we don't have the resources, or imagination isn't always, is hard to come by sometimes. And so how do we develop that adaptive capacity and that resilience to engage in, in the change that needs to occur um, and can occur and in our small membership congregations? Yeah. Well... Rachel, we have now come to what we call the lightning round. It is a tradition that we just started a few months ago when we began the Vital and Thriving Podcast. 
where you have 20 seconds or less to answer three questions. Are you ready? Yes. All right. First, <laughs> what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go. Um, so there's this great sort of taco salad. I don't know who made it. It's got lettuce and ground beef and Western dressing on it. I don't even know if you can get Western dressing outside of the Midwest, but it is so good. And then there's like crushed up Doritos in it. Um, it, it is fantastic. Um, it's only way I can eat black olives. So, <laughs> um, the worst thing though, can I just add the worst thing is, is jello that has stuff suspended in it like uh, fruit or Ooh. carrots. Sometimes people make orange jello and shred carrots up in it. And I, I can't do that. Yes. So I, I think this is a particular affliction of the Midwestern church. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yes. The jello mold. Or, or famously, famously, I might add, in the movie National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Aunt Bethany put cat food into the lime jello. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Which is how I think of... All such dishes. Okay. So you're totally blowing our time here, Rachel. Okay. Second, second, what is your very first memory of a worship service? Very first memory of a worship service. Go. Uh, so Pentecost Sunday, when I was probably three or four years old, and everybody was encouraged to wear red. And it's the only time I've ever seen my mom in a red dress. And it was, I just remember all the red. And uh, my pastor talking about the Holy Spirit. And it was something. The whole church, yeah, it was just everybody was red. It was, it was, it was pretty powerful. Okay, you've just changed the iconography for Pentecost for me forever. It's a, a red dress. A red dress, it. I love yeah. It. yeah. That's so powerful. Okay. Okay, we, again, we're violating the 22nd rule because you are so interesting. All right, one more, one more. Finally, tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that you think we should know more about. Yeah, so Ruth Haley Barton, she wrote a really great book. I'm just written a couple of books and it's got a new one coming out, but strengthening the soul of your leadership. And she comes at it from a pastoral and spiritual direction sort of way. And it's such a great book. Takes you sort of in a deep dive about the um, spiritual practices um, necessary for leaders to be resilient um, in the face of change and um, in ministry. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Rachel. We'll look forward to welcoming you to the Bay Area for our next Vital and Thriving Gathering in October. Yeah, I'm excited. So Claire, what did you learn from Rachel today? So much. Um, I guess there were two things that stood out. I really appreciated her describing a big learning from moving a congregation through this process being that she really had to kind of step back and let both her lay leadership step forward and sort of give herself over to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that's a really important reminder for lay and clergy leaders of a parish alike. Um mm -hmm. And when she was talking about 
the kind of energizing and restorative nature of the process, the the PMC process, um, just made me think about how we're so used to thinking about our energy in in terms of the narrative of our culture, which is a very zero-sum kind of story. You know, you expend energy and you just deplete the tank. Um, and I do think it's been surprising for, for example, the lay leaders I had take part in the listening process that, you know, there have just been things that were really refreshing and and fulfilling that came out of that that were unexpected. And I think that's a really lovely and kind of enlivening sign of the spirit at work in our communities. Mm. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I agree with all that. And I I would add, I just, I, we talked to that, that uh, we used that term at the beginning that uh, she's a reflective practitioner. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what just comes through to me when I work with, when I listen to Rachel. Practitioner meaning, you know, she's not She's not in an ivory tower somewhere. She's got skin in the game. She's she's not only walking alongside us uh, mm-hmm. here in the Diocese of California, but she's actually leading congregations. So she's got skin in the game as a leader, but she uh, she also is reflective. That is, she she is being formed in what we can learn through research and best practices. Um, she understands. There's there's millions of dollars that get spent every year to collect data about communities. All this social scientific data, sociogram information, you know, yeah. it's it's very important information that you know businesses really know how to exploit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to to be able to take all kinds of areas of research and see how that actually helps you understand the story you're in, right? Yeah. That you're in a community. That has a story, that has contours, it has a shape, uh, and to have that have that confidence that, you know, no one knows that story better than the Creator who loves us and who's present, mm. and to be able to try to bring those things together, you know, it's like quilting to like you know pull the <laughs> pull the. My wife's a quilter. I'm always talking about quilting, yes. but you know, but like being able that that art of kind of discernment and bringing those things together and. Uh, sensing where where we're being called. Yeah. Well, it's always be good to be with you. I, I hope that you uh, rest up for our next podcast. Can't wait to see I you. I will. And I hope you recover from the crushing blow of the loss. <laughs> Go Giants. <laughs> see ya. This episode of the Vital and Thriving Podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information. Mm-hmm.